ever hear that song sung about standing on the promises that I don't think about that preacher getting up and saying, Brethren, you sing about standing on the promises and all in the world you're doing is sitting on the premises. But that's another sermon for another day and another time. Today is Father's Day. That day that's set aside as a national day in our country that fathers are honored. And theoretically, fathers are honored on Father's Day in the same way that mothers are honored on Mother's Day. And I say that theoretically. I like the explanation that little Johnny gave when they asked him in Sunday school what the difference was in Father's Day and Mother's Day. You know, the, the, the little bad boy in Sunday school is always named Johnny. That's, that's like a federal law that any, in any preacher story where you've got a little bad boy in Sunday school, his name's Johnny. And the teacher said, what's the difference in Father's Day and Mother's Day? And little Johnny raised his hand. She said, Johnny, what's the difference? He said, Father's Day and Mother's Day are just alike, except you don't spend as much for the present on Father's Day. Theoretically. Admittedly, fathers and men in general don't get a lot of respect sometimes. And that even holds true at church. On Mother's Day, we usually have a soft, sweet, sentimental, tear-jerking, Mother's Day sermon and talk about how wonderful mothers are. Father's Day, we usually get a beating from the pulpit about how fathers need to be more responsible and do a better job raising their children and so forth and so on. In fact, it's like the man that was leaving church one Sunday after Father's Day sermon said, You know, if that kind of sermon is the kind of sermon that you hear on Father's Day, the opening day of duck season ought to be called Duck's Day. To be sure, there is often a communication gap between the genders, and that can be a problem. You know, it's like the book that was out several years ago, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Well, we need to understand, folks need to understand, the brain of a father operates on a totally different frequency. And sometimes what we say is misunderstood. And that can lead to serious conflict. So just briefly, before we get into the meat of our lesson, I want to give you some, a short clarification of some of the expressions that we use as men and as fathers and give you their meaning. When we say it would take too long to explain, that means I have no earthly idea how it works. When we say, take a break, honey, you're working too hard. Translation, I can't hear the game over the vacuum cleaner. When we say, well, well, dear, that's interesting. That means, are you still talking? When we say, it's a guy thing, you know what that means? There is no rational thought pattern connected with this. And you have no chance at all of ever making it logical. When we say, honey, could I help with dinner? That translates to... Why isn't dinner ready yet? When we say, uh-huh, honey, or, or sure, dear, or, or yes, dear, it means nothing. It's just a conditioned response. When we say, you know how bad my memory is, that means I can remember the theme song to Hogan's Heroes. 
I can remember the phone number of the first girl that I ever kissed. I can read to you, I can tell you from memory the vehicle identification number of every car I've ever owned. But yes, I forgot our anniversary. When we say, I heard you, that means I haven't the foggiest clue what you just said. And I'm hoping desperately I can fake it well enough that you'll not spend the next three days yelling at me. When we say, honey, you know I could never love anyone else. That means I'm used to the way you yell at me and I realize it could be worse. When we say, I don't remember saying that. That means anything that I have said or may have said six months ago is inadmissible in any argument. In fact, all past comments become null and void after seven days. And when we say, that's not what I meant. That means if something I said can be interpreted two ways and one of those makes you sad or angry, I meant the other one. Now what I want to do is I don't want to make this a bad day for fathers this morning. Actually, I'm somewhat partial to fathers. I really, for the most part, think they're pretty good people. So I want to look at some positive aspects of fatherhood. I want us to look at a very familiar story that comes from the Bible. It's the story of a wayward son and a good father. In fact, it's the story of a perfect father. Because you see, as Jesus tells the story, He's picturing our Father that is in heaven, God. The father in the story that's recorded in Luke chapter 15 was quite well to do. He was, as we would say in our day and time, comfortably fixed. He had an estate. He had an inheritance for his sons. And the inheritance was large enough that the son could enjoy an extravagant lifestyle for a time. And the father also had enough money that when the son came home, he could put a ring on his finger. He could kill the fatted calf. He could have a great big party and hire musicians. So we know that this father in Luke chapter 15 was a man of means. Now we've always recognized something. And that is that providing for a family. That's part of the job of every father. Paul would write in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, But if any provide not for his own, and especially those of his own house, he's denied the faith, and he's worse than an infidel. According to the most recent statistics I've been able to accumulate, by the time you raise a child from birth until they graduate from college, you'll spend somewhere in the neighborhood of $300,000 per child. That's the cost of a small yacht. It would buy a really nice McMansion in, in some of our suburbs in our major cities. It would also buy you about six Mercedes-Benz automobiles. That's the reason that folks talk about Dad... Dad's the guy with a wallet full of pictures where there used to be money. This father in our story provided for the basic needs of his family. And he was also a father that was 
generous beyond what was reasonable. Look at Luke chapter 15 and verses 11 and 12 and then down to verse 15. A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the inheritance of the goods that fall to me. And he divided unto them his living. And that's what he did. But then it says, and when he had spent all, in verse 15, he joined himself to a citizen of that country and sent him into the fields to feed swine. Now you put that into our contemporary language and here's what you've got. You've got a boy, 19, 20, 21 years old. He comes in to see his dad and he says, Dad, I've done the math. And I've come to the conclusion that I'm going to get several hundred thousand dollars when you die. And I don't want to sit around and wait till you die. I want my part of that inheritance and I want it now. Well, to our great surprise, as you read the story, the Father gives it to him. And that's exceedingly generous. And there are many of us that would want to have a tendency to question the wisdom and judgment of the Father in the story for giving him this several hundred thousand dollars of his inheritance. But as we read the story and as we read to the end of the story, I think we understand that there are some things that this father probably knew that you and I don't know. He knew that the son was going to go to the far country no matter what happened. And he knew that there were some lessons, some hard lessons the son was going to have to learn and was going to have to learn on his own. And he knew what was best for those who stayed behind. So he gave him his inheritance. Now that's generosity. You know, the sad part about us in our humanity is that sometimes we don't understand generosity until it's too late. It's like the humorist Irma Bombeck once wrote about her dad. She said, my daddy just didn't know how to show love. It was mom who held the family together. He just went to work every day and when he came home, she had a list of sins we'd committed and he'd give us what for about them. I broke my leg once on a swing set. It was mom who held me in her arms all the way to the hospital. Dad pulled the car right up to the emergency room door, and when they asked him to move it, because it was a space reserved for emergency vehicles, he shouted, what do you think this is, a tour bus? Mom carried me in while Dad parked the car. It seems all my life Dad was parking the car someplace, coming in wet, half frozen, but he'd been parking the car. My dad was always sort of out of place. At birthday parties, he just busied himself blowing up balloons or setting up tables or running errands. It was mom that carried the cake in and held it for me to blow the candles out. I remember when mom told him to teach me how to ride a bicycle, I said, don't let go. But dad said it was time. So I fell and mom ran to pick me up, but he waved her off. I was so mad I showed him. I got right back on that bike and I rode it all by myself. He didn't even feel embarrassed. He just smiled. 
When I went off to college, he was just fiddling with the luggage and the boxes. It was mom that sat down and said everything would be all right. She was the one that did all the writing. He just sent checks and a little note about how great the lawn looked now that I wasn't playing football on it. When I got married, it was mom that got all choked up and cried. Dad just blew his nose loudly and left the room. All my life, he kept saying, what are you doing? What time are you going to be home? Do you have gas in the car? Who's going to be there? No, you can't go. Not mom. She just loved me. But daddy, he just didn't seem to know how to show love unless it was possible he was showing it all along. And I just didn't recognize it. This perfect father in our story in Luke 15. He gave his sons some space when it was appropriate. He gave them space to be their own person. Look what it says in in verse 13. Not many days after, after he gathered up the inheritance, not many days after the younger son gathered all his together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. You know, sometimes the hardest thing we have to do is let our children loose. Remember that first day of school when you left them there alone? Remember when they were going to camp the first time and they were gone all week long? Remember when they drove for the very first time without you in the car? Let me see a show of hands of those of you that weren't afraid when that happened. Remember when they went to college and you left them at the dormitory? I remember when Norman, my mother, and I left Matt at Stephenville in that dormitory all by himself. With mother in the back seat, Norman in the front seat, that car floated all the way back to East Texas on a river of tears. Remember when you walked your daughter down the aisle? You gave her to a man that was nowhere on the top side of God's green earth near enough, good enough for her. And you did that so they could have children that would be smarter and cuter than anyone else's children that were ever born. Sometimes we've got to give our kids some space. There's four stages in parenting. That first stage is discipline. That comes from birth to about age five. That's where you set the rules and the guidelines. This is right. This is wrong. This is good. This is bad. If you don't do that during those first five years, you probably won't be able to do it at all. Then that second stage is training. That's from about age six to about age twelve. That's when you set the example. That's when you're a good role model. You show them how to dress themselves and tie their shoes and cut their meat and It's training time. You're modeling for them and they're imitating and watching you. And Then comes that third stage, that's coaching, ages 13 to about 19. That's when the child is actually in the game. And oh my goodness, we're coaching from the sidelines. 
We're not playing the game for them. They're playing it for themselves. We may call time out. We may huddle. We may send in some plays. We're the coach. But they're the players. And then that last stage, that fourth stage is friendship. Starts at about 20 and goes to the rest of your life. And you just become good friends. You walk together and you talk together. You remember together and you laugh together. You've turned them loose. You've created them. You've turned them loose to be what God created them to be. If you have a father, or had a father, and I did, who was wise enough to turn you loose and let you become the person God created you to be, thank God for it. But this father in our story was something else. He was willing to forgive a very serious offense. In verse 14, when this boy had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. This boy had grown up in the very lap of luxury. He had always had everything he wanted, everything he needed, and now for the first time in his life, he was in need. Always before, the Father had provided for him, and now he's homeless, and he's hungry, and he's cold. Being in need is a new experience for him. Verse 15 says that he joined himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed swine. That's about the lowest job you can get on a farm. That's ground zero. Slopping the hogs. And to a young Jewish boy, that is the lowest task imaginable. And Jesus is telling this story so we'll know that this boy has gone from the lap of luxury, from the highest of highs, to the lowest of lows. Verse 16 and 17, He would have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And he came to himself and he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. Verses 16 and 17, that's when like the cartoons, the light bulb goes on in the boy's brain. He goes, Duh! This doesn't make sense. I left home because I thought Dad's rules were too strict. I didn't like it there. I thought living on my own was going to be just so much better. And here I am, hungry, slopping hogs. It just doesn't get any worse than that, folks. And he says, duh, this is stupid. I need to do something a little different. So in verse 18 and 19, I will arise... And go to my Father. And I will say unto Him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before Thee. I'm no more worthy to be called Thy Son. Listen to it. Make me as one of Thy hired servants. Notice that word make in there. Because there is a big difference. Before His experience in the pig pen, 
He was saying, give me. Give me what's mine. Give me my inheritance. Give it to me now. Now he's ready to go back home and say, Dad, make me. Everybody sometimes needs to travel that road. When we graduate from saying to God, God, give me, give me, give me, to the place where we say to God, make me. Make me, God, into the kind of person You want me to be. Make me and mold me like the song, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Mold me, God. Make me, God, into a servant that's fitting to be called Your child. Make me, God, into the kind of person You want me to be. That's when we've graduated. To where God can start making us and molding us into what we ought to be. But I love verse 20. It's a great scene. Here's this son, this rebellious son. He's coming back home. He said, He arose and came to his father. When he was still a great way off, the father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful scene? That son is coming back home again. The rebellious son is coming back home. Now let me ask you something. If I'd been his father, you'd been his father? Oh, we'd have given him an earful, wouldn't we? Boy, it's about time you showed up again. Look at you. You smell awful. You're broke. You're destitute. And you're coming back. If you came back for some more money and you think I'm going to give you anything else, you've got another thing coming, boy. You're an embarrassment, son. You're a failure. You realize what you've done to your mother? Great line. Get some overtime. You realize what you've put your mother through? She's worried herself sick. Just when we're getting on with our lives, here you show up again. That's human nature a lot of times. That's not what God wants us to do. And that's not what God does. The father saw him and he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. While the son was still a long way off, he saw him and ran to meet him. Now look at verses 21 through 24. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I'm not even worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to the servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For my son that was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. They had one more party because that boy came home. What does that tell us about the father? It tells us that the father in that story forgave his son. And sometimes that's hard, isn't it? Forgiving sometimes is one of the toughest things we're called on to do. But that's what the Father in this story did. What do we see? He loved his sons equally, but he handled them differently. The elder son was in the field, and he came and drew nigh to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and said, What does this mean? He said, Thy brother has come, and thy father has killed the fatted calf, because he's received him safe and sound. And he was angry. And would not go in. And therefore came his father out and entreated him. The two sons are very different. One spends his substance in riotous living in the far country. The other one stays at home and 
does the everyday tasks. One has a wild streak in him and goes to the far country. They're very different boys. They couldn't be handled the same way. Then in verse 29, he said, the boy said to his father, All these many years I've served you, neither transgressed thy your commandments, and yet you never even gave me a kid to make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, you've killed for him the fatted calf. The father said, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. We may not always handle our children the same way, but we love them equally. The Father in that story represents God. When you and I are in the far country, when we've gone away from God, God ever stands ready to welcome us back home. God ever stands ready with open arms, looking down that road, wanting us to come back to Him. I don't know what's going on in your life this morning. Maybe you've never even come to God. Maybe you've never even come to Christ in simple trusting faith. You've never repented of everything that's sin in your life, confessed His name, and been buried in the waters of baptism for sins, past sins, remission of past sins. And you need to do that. And make Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of your life. Or maybe like the Son in our story, you've gone down that road. Our perfect Father is God. God always stands with outstretched open arms and says, come back home. Maybe this morning you need to make some changes to make Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of your life. Because if He's not Lord and Master of all of your life, He's not Lord and Master at all in your life. If you need to make changes, and if we can help you in making those changes, this is your opportunity to come and let us do that as together we stand and while we sing.